Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode 73. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges or difficulties, reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Also, if you want to connect with others who are interested in addiction treatment or in recovery themselves, join our Facebook group. You can just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and uh, click join. Also, if you're loving the Addicted Mind, please share it with a friend. So today we're going to talk with Mike Collins, and he's going to share his story of addiction and specifically dealing with sugar addiction. It's a great conversation, something I totally relate to and totally can understand, something that uh, has been part of my life and my work in recovery. So I think it's a great episode. I love having this conversation. I think this is information that a lot of people need to hear, especially people who are struggling with addiction because sugar becomes a substitute for a lot of other addictive processes or addictive substances. Sugar becomes an easy way to at least feel better, but it has its consequences. So I enjoyed the conversation with Mike and I think you guys are going to enjoy it as well. So let's go ahead and start it. Hello everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Michael Collins, and he's going to talk about sugar addiction, but also his own history of dealing with addiction. Michael, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, 
the addicted mind seems to be the perfect name for <laughs> the stuff that I've been studying in the last five years more intently. Into it all seems to revolve around the brain's reward system: dopamine and serotonin, and norepinephrine, GABA. I know, even our adrenals. You know, yeah. So, yeah. No, I've. Uh, <laughs> they got a saying, I'm just a regular guard variety drunk. And I don't like that statement anymore. You know, the substance use disorder stuff is more up my alley. But I came around uh, recovery about 34 years ago, and a little over 34 years ago now. And uh, I, I start, I mean, I was just, I'm going to loop it back to the, the sugar stuff that you talked about. But sure. And, and you know, kind of my specialty these days. But you know, as I got to be 13, 14 years old, it was just starting to party a little bit and whatever. And then through college and I ran large night, well, I learned, I taught, uh, what I learned in college was how to run bar, the college nights hotspots. Right? Oh, right, right. And, and then I did that for a living till I got sober, basically at uh, 28 years old. And, um, you know, drugs and alcohol and just about everything, cocaine. And I luckily I missed the... Uh, the, the crack cocaine and the opioid crisis yeah. and wine coolers. So I missed a few things. That's good <laughs> that's, for me anyway. It's not a bad thing, you know. <laughs> I'm right there with I'm you. I'm kind of glad I missed wine. We missed wine coolers. No, no, just, <laughs> anyway, what I'm getting at here is that uh, over the years, I went on to have a regular kind of business career life and a couple of kids and a marriage and whatever. And But the sugar thing, as I got sober, I started to read a couple books about it and it started to recognize that it was damn near identical to my using. I had to have it. I got anxious. I got irritable when I didn't have it. I had withdrawal symptoms when I tried to quit it, the whole thing. Right, right. And then I somehow talked my, um, we met in recovery, my then wife, to having two babies, they were twins, from the womb forward, they never had sugar, flour, or caffeine. Wow. And it just, yeah, it started me on a curious journey to just try and figure out. And I would, uh, in the restaurant industry, it started when I was really young. I would notice that like a lot of the caffeine drinkers had dark circles under their eyes. And it, it was literally an observational anecdotal thing, but I started to pay attention to that even during my own drug and alcohol use. And uh, I kept kept that up, especially with people that drank and, and the flush red face and that kind of stuff. So it was real observational. But I stayed off sugar and flour and caffeine for the last 30 years. It, it took me a while to get off it. But when I finally did, uh, I just stuck to it. Then I had my regular life. And about 10 years ago, I grabbed the domain sugaraddiction.com. I started putting out information about it. But it didn't really help folks much. Um, it's like, I think, regular recovery in a lot of ways where folks have to have a community. They have to have people that they're doing this with. And when we started that two or three years ago, things kind of took off at that point. So that's the podcast version. I can fill in anywhere you want. Um, right. Um, well, tell me a little bit about, because you got sober first, so you were getting sober at 28. When did you start to recognize that food or not food, but sugars particularly was a problem for you? How did you start to realize that? Well, I didn't really eat any other real food. I mean, everything was, you know, flour, sugar, pasta, pizza, bread, whatever. Right. And, you know, a few of my friends were in the food program, but I didn't really go to those. But, you know, folks were gaining, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this, that you may have seen it, but they would gain 20 to 50 pounds like in the first year of recovery, right? Yeah, that's not an uncommon, like a lot of people that come and work with me 
or are working on sobriety, the first couple of years, food becomes, and I, I think it's more sugar than really food, but Correct. sugar becomes kind of this alternative dopamine rush. Yeah. I mean, it's for sure. It's, and, and, you know, to circle back and, and to, my mother was a sugar junkie, a lovely sugar junkie. You know, and I think she died of flat ass sugar addiction. I really believe that in the end of her life, she wouldn't eat regular food. She had Alzheimer's. And when the filter was gone, she just wanted sugar. I mean, we had to push her to eat regular food. Yeah. And there's a great quote on, uh, you can find it on YouTube with Eric Clapton, the famous guitarist and Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes. And Ed, they're down as uh, Antigua Treatment Center, $7 million he put up with his own money. And Ed says to him, so Eric, all this started with uh, heroin, this addiction stuff. And <laughs> Eric says, no, it started, Ed, with sugar. Right. It started with when I was six years old, right. eating bread and butter and sugar sandwiches. Right. And well, we used to eat those. I about freaked out when I heard it. He said, anything I would do to change my state, I would do. And essentially, that's how I grew up with my mom's stash. And my mom thought sugar was love for everyone. Just to kind of clarify, as you talk about this, when you're talking about sugar, you're also talking about um People might not associate like white bread with sugar or pasta with sugar. Mm. Um, you're, it sounds like you're also talking about that. Like that is also, your body treats that as sugar, these refined carbohydrates. Correct. Absolutely. Now there's beginning to be a delineation with the fructose and a lot of the research centers on the fructose, which should table sugars, half glucose and half fructose. And some bread and pasta does not have fructose in it, but it certainly has glucose and it has powdered glucose. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, it, body doesn't know the difference and the insulin response and the blood sugar responses are, I don't want to say they're psychoactive, but I know for a fact with the research that I've done and the people that are way ahead that I believe with all my heart that fructose is a psychoactive drug, one that is ingested so often that the level of toxicity rises you know, they always say it's as addictive as cocaine and all this. So, you know, it's not so much that you get that buzz right away, but over time, your body is pounding, manipulating your dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, even your adrenals, right? You're just pounding it. Totally. And that, that's got to wreak havoc. And we know from the food addiction folks that that is exactly what's happening. Right. Like you were saying, you were telling the story of how, hey, I use sugar in the beginning when I was six years old to change how I felt. You know, that's exactly what happened to me. And I didn't, I don't think that when I discovered beer at 13 or 14, I just elevated my using. And then when I quit uh, some odd years later, 28, I just went back to it. And not that I stopped during it because the days that I would try and take off like Tuesday and Monday and Tuesday nights when I didn't go out drinking, you know, I, I would have quite a bit of sugar. And that's what happened to my father. He quit drinking sugar and joined my, or quit drinking alcohol and joined my mother in the sugar. And uh, so it's it's very common. And <clears throat> excuse me, I think that it's just my mentors tell us this this is a thirty year game. This is a drinking and driving, um, bath, uh, condoms in bathrooms, smoking in public places, the education process, the reversing of a culture of sugar where everything celebrations giving it to babies. It's going to take time to shift, but the, I can't, we can't ignore the research anymore. Yeah. I think that's, I think the research coming out around how sugar has that addictive quality 
yeah, it's really starting to be pretty powerful research that can't be ignored. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's been a the research part is interesting. I mean, uh, I've interviewed all the top scientists, and I've asked a few of them point blank, "Is fructose a psychoactive drug?" And they say yes, and that makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because in my work. It's really sad. And, you know, if, if folks would understand if they could spend five minutes in my inbox or five minutes on my messenger, uh, they would understand that the suffering out there is immense. People are two and three and 400 pounds overweight, losing limbs, going blind. Yep. And they still, can't, you know, getting diagnosed with diabetes and they still cannot quit sugar. Yeah. It's like they're, they're, the doctor says, you're going to die. And they, still have to use the product. If that's not addiction, I'm not sure what is. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think that's so true. And I think we're starting to really realize it. And it's been hidden in our food too, with all processed food and uh, all the high fructose corn syrup. And, you know, so it's almost hidden and uh, nobody can see it. Exactly. And yet they're ingesting it, which is even more in some ways insidious. And then people blame themselves and beat themselves up. Like there must be something wrong with me that, you know, I'm 400 pounds, but they don't realize they're actually dealing with an addictive process. Sure. And that, that people do not want to hear that. You know, I've basically made my living in marketing for 30 years. And, and Pete, you know, when you're trying to discover how do you get this information out? Well, let me tell you, they do not want to hear about addiction or addict or anything that even resembles that. Right. And you had mentioned the, you know, the high fructose corn syrup. There's that word again, right? So you can, you can, uh, look at the, the obesity crisis as it parallels the growth of fru- high fructose corn syrup in our food system. Yeah. And it's exactly up and to the right. They run parallel as one grows, the other grows. It's, you know, if that's not perfect proof, I don't know what is. And 80, 80% of food products that are in a box or a bag or a can have sugar or fructose in it kind of, like you said, hidden, right? Right. So nobody even knows they're ingesting it, even in savory products, you know? Yeah. Ketchup. Yeah, I know. It's it's crazy. What, what about, tell me a little bit about like when you made that decision or that connection that, wait a minute, I think I'm addicted to sugar mm. and you started to quit because you said it took a couple years for you to, to mm. do that. Tell me about that process of like realizing and then working to change it. No, that's a great question. And Back then, I didn't have any support. I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. Um, the guys, the old guys that around recovery say, are you sober today, Mike? I say, yeah. <laughs> well, don't worry about the sugar. you know. But I felt like it was I, the irritability. And so I tried to quit. First, I was trying to quit caffeine because I remember I, I, I recognized that back from my bar, bartending days, that, you know, that the dark circle stuff. And I, I was getting those. I didn't want those. But I couldn't, and it took me about six or eight months to do that, and then sugar, then it took me six or eight more months, and then it took me another six or eight months to quit uh, flour, right? I'd start, I'd stop, I'd start, I'd stop. I kept going back and forth. But that book, Sugar Blues, I don't know if I mentioned that yet, but Sugar Blues really helped me. Sugar Blues was written by a guy named William Duffy in 1975 and updated in 86, but he uh, he was <laughs> at a party once, and... Uh, from a voice from behind, he's putting two lumps of sugar in his coffee, right? And from a voice from behind him says, I wouldn't have that stuff in my house, let alone my body, right? And, and it's Gloria Swanson, the, the movie star Gloria Swanson, right? So he ends up marrying her, 
and he writes the book and they talk about sugar. And that book really helped me a lot. It was really some of the only information out there. Right. And, and so I learned, like I got their opinion of it, what was going on with it. And uh, he lost a bunch of weight and obviously Gloria Swanson was always thin, but you know, I mean, it was just, uh, I guess I got lucky in a lot of ways that that information was, I did attend a few food groups, but they didn't seem to relate. It was all women and it just, I didn't seem to relate. So I was kind of on my own with that. And then I just kind of suffered through it. Um, and it took a long time. It doesn't have to take almost two years or whatever, three years, but you know, you can do it a lot quicker, but. Right. So it was a, l- a little bit of a struggle. It was a stop and a start. And I think it is hard because this food is everywhere. And if you're lacking with dopamine or, or you're depressed or you're re- in recovery and you feel miserable, I mean, it's easy to pick up a Coke or a Snickers bar just to feel a little bit better, at least in the moment. Sure. Yeah, I think that the, uh, you know, he's Rodney Dangerfield, I don't you remember him. He's a comedian, right? He, he had a tagline that says, I don't get no respect, right? And, and sugar just doesn't get any respect as a drug of addiction, right? It doesn't get any respect as a powerful psychoactive. And when you're continuing to use it over and over again, it, at the point where we get to be our age, you're just fighting off withdrawals at that point. Yeah. You just can't, you don't have time, you got kids, you got a life, you got a meeting to go to. You cannot be, have a headache and be lethargic and be irritable to go into your meeting. You know, in brain fog. This part of it is so undermentioned and underunderstood is that the brain fog that is created by sugar, a lot of people, you know, obviously they come, they want to lose weight. That's their first thing. Right. And, uh, or whatever, they want to get off their diabetes meds. But when they start to realize after two or three months that their literal brain comes back online, they're thinking better, they're thinking more clearly. And this, repetitive pummeling of the dopamine and other other brain chemical reward systems is just such a not i don't know if it's misunderstood for people who are actually researching it but it's people just don't connect the dots or put a and b together that this is really something that's affecting your beautiful brain right and if you don't know any different i mean if you've been eating sugar your whole life your whole existence and you don't know that there's something different out there and then it's difficult to get off of it because your body's always kind of calling for it if it's always been a part of your system, that it's hard to know that w- what it's like to not have sugar in your body. You bring up an excellent point. And, and I say this all the time to people. They just think this is their life. This is how they feel. This is how their body, ga- their body gains weight. They can run it off or whatever. But the reality is not true. I mean, the fructose turns to fat in your liver. We have children with fatty liver disease, right? Mm -hmm. And this idea that the actual scientific term is that your your dopamine receptors get down-regulated, okay? And I actually believe because of my mother, my mother gained 60 pounds on a 105-pound frame. And she told me that she basically ate sugar products. You know, she was scared. She was nervous. She was young. She wasn't a drinker, but you know her family was a drinker, so she she's drinkers, and so she ate the sugar. You know, so it's just like I think we get a little shortchanged, literally through the womb of our dopamine receptors. And if you get sober during the, uh, we have this habit that literally we've had since we were children, and the product is basically free. So instead of dealing with the anxiety, dealing with the worry, dealing with the pain, dealing with the emotions to start to surface. 
we reach backwards to our old, to our youth before we had access to alcohol or cigarettes or whatever. And we pick the sugar back up and we substitute it. And, and by doing that, we also increase the volume of the sugar that we were using right before we started drinking. So it's a, it, it's a weird, like connect the dots kind of thing. But when you delve into the research and understand it all, the same exact brain chemicals are affected. Right. Yeah. The pleasure centers of the brain, you know, and doing a little bit of research on this myself. What I've also read is that in some ways, the sugar that we have today in the last 50 years is not the sugar we evolved to eat Mm. naturally out in the environment. And so our brains uh, respond to this in a way, almost a hyper sensitivity to it because we're, we're not we didn't evolve to ingest this kind of sugar. Right. Such a great observation. And so, so true. I mean, there's a great video on YouTube by a guy named Dr. Fetke, Gary Fetke, right? This is fruit good for you. And he actually has nofructose.com. And the bottom line is, is that when fruit 300 years ago, you wouldn't even even been able to eat a banana. It's got so many seeds in it. And the apples are those little crab apples you see in nature, right? But over the 300 years, they've been hybridized for what? For fructose, right? They've been hybridized for the sweetness for the product that's so sweet. And let's let's take a navel, navel orange, my goodness. How does this thing propagate in nature? There is no seeds in it. It has to be an engineered grafted product, right? And this is the only way to create it. So, and when you think about an orange juice hitting the liver with the same velocity as a Coke because it's the same amount of fructose with no fiber. And people always say, and Dr. Vecchi says in the video, it used to be the, the green vegetable grocer, right? And somehow some beautiful marketing technique put it together with fruits and vegetables, right? When in reality, these are really highly processed things with tons of fructose in them. And I get a lot of pushback on this. But when people cut back pretty substantially on the fruit as they try and get off the sugar, they are more successful. They don't go back and forth because it's like any drug. It's like it'd be trying to get sober and drinking a beer instead of doing whiskey. You know what I mean? You're still agitating that dopamine system. Right. And it takes a little while for the body to adjust to a different uh, lifestyle. I mean, it's, I think that's what makes it so hard to quit sugar is that you're used to that. You know, and I have personal experience with this, and that's also one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. Okay, it's, you know, and and my experience has been that it takes a while for the body to readjust. Oh yeah, and you don't really see the benefits until you're away from it. I guess just like other substances or behaviors or addictive things, you don't see the benefit until you have some time. Mm, no, that's so true. One of the things I've been reading about recently and kind of thinking about a lot is uh, something called the dopamine detox, right? Meaning, if Dr. Lustig talks about in Hacking the American Mind, where the serotonin is that calming influence in your right life, and the dopamine was meant to chase food and chase sex and get us excited and whatever motivated and give us pleasure for good positive things like food and sex. But the, dope, the serotonin is more of a calm thing, you know, it's like, and the things that activate dopamine are usually, you know, gambling and sex and cigarettes and substances and whatever. And if you can just kind of start to adjust your life and lean a little bit more into the serotonin part of your feel-good chemicals, your reward systems, and while you're in recovery, 
or as you start recovery, don't start smoking more cigarettes and eating more candy. And people will say it's better, but damn, I just don't think it is. When you see the progression, you know, they're calling diabetes, Alzheimer's, diabetes three, because this such a higher percentage of people with diabetes two end up with Alzheimer's. So I, I just, I think that, you know, the science is bearing this out every single day. We can't wait diagnostically as a person individually or as a society to wait until we can diagnostically prove this. So, you know, you got to go with people who have done it before you. Yeah. And I think, you know, as people are struggling with this, as they walk away from it, they'll be able to, to experience that, experience that the freedom from some of the cravings, the intense kind of always desire that always just lingers with you as you kind of once you're in that cycle of addiction, you just keep looking and looking and looking. And food can be that way for a lot of people too, especially when they've got that high sugar diet. Absolutely. I mean, the um, stopping the sugar right away is like a uh, almost mandatory. The, the cravings, the physical cravings go away, right? Yes, you still have a mental game after 30 or 60 or 90 days. You still have to be vigilant and what have you. But that loud craving. One of the things I tell people, and they really don't believe it, is that this concept of a growling stomach, right? It's like stomachs don't growl. My stomach hasn't growled in 30 years. And you could hear my stomach across the table. I mean, this is something that is actually a sugar and flour withdrawal symptom. It's this ravenous internal feeling in your your stomach, which is where the delivery system of the sugar is. If it's uh, alcohol, you're still delivering it through drinking. If it's heroin, you're delivering it through a needle. The delivery system of sugar goes through your mouth and through your system, right? And one of the withdrawal symptoms is this ravenous need to get it back in there, to hit the dopamine receptor. And so your body trains itself to do that. So paying attention to those things will help you move forward. And I've never had anybody go 90 days and go back. I mean, a full, real 90 days of abstinence and then go back. Their skin is better. They fall into a normal body weight. They're waking up early in the morning. They're waking up refreshed in the morning. Their brain is coming back online. They'll fight for that. And if they do fall back, they just have a little a little bit. That, those are stories of what we call the retreads or the recidivism Right. They, they said, well, you know, somebody died and they were at the wake and they had a thing. And then six months later, after six months and 60 more pounds, they come back and it was, it all started with just one, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing as any other substance. Just don't use the first one. You'll be, you'll be okay. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I have a question I think people would be asking, right? Yeah. People who maybe haven't tried to live without sugar, they might ask the question, well, then wh- what do you eat? Right. Now, I, I get that question a lot, actually, quite a lot. Uh, it's a good question. Here's the thing. I mean, uh, there's a bariatric surgeon out there who's, who won't do the surgery unless you understand the concept that we've been talking about for 20 minutes here, is that snacking or sweets is an emotional event. It's not a nutrition event, right? You eat two to three, sometimes, you know, two, sometimes three times a day. That's what you do for nutrition. The rest is an emotional respite from your day. And that's where the sweets come in, right? That's where the crunchies come in. That's where the whatever, even dessert at some level is almost like a time release capsule so that the sugar goes in, mixes with the food, and then passes. So you have sugar being released as it digests all day or all night or whatever. So so you're never in withdrawals, right? 
It's not a nutrition event. It's an emotional event, right? And so the what do you eat question is whole food. You eat the outside of the grocery store, vegetables, meat, seafoods, you know, a little dairy. If you, you know, it depends. Some people don't do well on it. But, and if you're going to eat fruit, and I use it, a lot of times I use berries, uh, low glycemic, low fructose kind of stuff as the literal methadone to move them on to total fructose freedom. And then, like I said, if you can really truly stay off the dopamine for a little bit, you can see how the, um, like your sexuality changes, your runner's high changes, because your, your dopamine receptors are coming back online. You know, they're, they're, they're healing up and you're, you're doing better in that regard. So I just, if folks would just, and look, we're adults here, right? I mean, if I tell you to stay off steak or broccoli for 60 days, 30 days, 90 days, whatever, you'd, you'd say, okay, I, I like steak, but I'll do it if it works. But people cannot do this little experiment. Like people, it's becoming quite chic now to have a dry month or a dry year and not to drink alcohol. And people do it pretty easily. And women can quit alcohol or cigarettes the day they find out they're pregnant. But damn if they can quit sugar the day they find out they're pregnant. And people, like, there's at least a thousand, maybe more, sugar detoxes on the market, right? But it's like no one seems to want to try this for 60 or 90 days to see the adjustments and changes in their body. Because what you said earlier, this is an addictive process at work. Right. Right. Definitely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. If anybody's listening to this podcast, this is a question I usually ask at, at the end of every podcast. If, if somebody's listening and they're, they think they're struggling with sugar addiction, what, what would you tell them? What would be the one thing you'd want them to know? Well, that you can't do this alone. It's a kind of a, there's a, I don't know if you saw it in the bio stuff, but I'm the chairman of the Food Addiction Institute, which is a nonprofit that's been around since 2005. And our stated goal is to get this elevated to a substance use disorder in the DSM-5 or 6, whichever is coming out next, 6. Wow. And so the, the people need to know, the founder of the organization says that this requires an inordinate amount of support, right? If you truly are a food addict and a processed food addict and a sugar addict, and especially if you have an addiction, the largest growth in my practice is people, thanks to podcasts like this, Amon, is, is people who are in recovery, who five, 10, 15 years in recovery, who still cannot put the sugar down. Right? Right. They've stopped substances, right. Yeah. right? yeah. So what I'd like them to know is that take this seriously if you think it's an issue. And if you think it's an issue, it probably is, just like alcohol. Uh, same kind of anal or edict, if you will. And so... Take it seriously, do your research, find out what's, and just do a test. Just do a test. Try 30 days. Just try it. And if you find it difficult, then maybe seek out some support. Seek out some support. I think that's great. Awesome. So if people want more information about you, where, where can they find you or how can they get more information? Yeah, sugaraddiction.com. It's uh, the original kind of, before it was cool, <laughs> before, right. before all the rage about sugar was hit when after Dr. Lustig's video there on YouTube. Right, right. Um, before that all hit, uh, we were out there pounding the drum a little bit, trying to get folks to understand it. Awesome. And we didn't even know much back then, so we, we would move, move along pretty good too. Well, awesome. Well, thank you for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast, sharing your story, sharing your wisdom. 
I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having us and thanks for doing the work you do. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to The Addicted Mind. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 73. If you're enjoying The Addicted Mind and you want to support us, please think about sharing the podcast with a friend. You can also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in The Addicted Mind podcast and click join, answer a few questions, and you can be part of that conversation as well. All right. Have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.